Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Zero Line. I'm Lisa Senecal, executive editor of Resolute Square, and I am joined today both by Sarah Ashton Cirillo, as always. Sarah, it's wonderful to have you here. Lisa, as usual, it's great to be here. And as you said, both. Uh, we have a special guest, and I can't wait for you to introduce him. We're so honored and privileged to have Oleksandr Musienko here with us today. He is the head of the Kiev-based Center for Military and Legal Studies and a friend of Sarah's, former work partner. So thank you so much, Oleksandr, for being here with us. Thank you very much for having me. That's a big pleasure, believe me. It's great to have you. And when we mentioned about bringing you on as a guest, the entire Resolute Square family was excited about this because you have a tremendous amount of understanding and insight from both the military perspective and also the legal perspective, the political side of things in Ukraine and across Europe and and the world, really. Over the last month, while I have been working in Washington, D.C. and now in Panama and in Mexico, I'll be joining you back in Kyiv very soon, within the next uh, couple of weeks. Can you tell the audience what's been happening over the last month or so on the ground in Ukraine? I know you went to a Defense Council meeting in France. I also know that you have been very busy in uh, speaking with people on the, the national television as to what's happening in Ukrainian national television. Explain to our audience what you're seeing right now over the last month. Well, thank you. I need to say, first of all, about the situation on the ground when we are speaking about frontline, because it's very important. And what I can see right now is that Russians uh, try to continue uh, their offensive operations, especially on the eastern front line. But what I can see is that Ukrainian forces uh, doing all the best and everything possible in this situation to stop these uh, attacks. And you know that Russians' uh, plan was to continue offensive operation, and they uh, was planning to capture all Donetsk oblast till the end of the 2023, till the end of the last year. So uh, they didn't, and that's why I can say that Ukrainian forces uh, have a success in this. Of course, uh, Russian forces have some tactical, uh, you know, they, they have tactical success on the ground because they move to, you know, one, two, three kilometers. Not not very much, but they continue. And Ukrainian forces try and do the best to stop them. Uh, to the, yesterday, it seems to me, yes, uh, uh, our Minister of Defense and... Uh, our uh, military authorities, they've been uh, on the Kupin's direction near Kharkiv, yes. Our commander-in-chief, uh, also General Zaluzhny, been there, and uh, commander of the ground forces of Ukraine. And they were speaking, and they are just uh, telling that uh, they are preparing 
not very good surprises for Russians. So that that was uh, very good. And what I can see is that, of course, uh, Ukrainian forces continue pressure on the Russian forces in occupied Crimea. That's also very important. And if, of course, we will have more missiles, like uh, Scalp G, like Storm Shadow, also we expect that probably it could be Taurus, German... Uh, German-made uh, missiles, uh, German-produced missiles, and also attackers from United States, we can uh, move forward because uh, we are very successful in our operation against Crimea. And also in Ukraine, in our internal issue, what I can see is that, you know, it was like a little bit, uh, a little bit situation with the questions, what will be next, what will be in the nearest future? Because last year, in the beginning of 2023, uh, we understood, and people here in Ukraine, they understood that, look, we are preparing for preparing for counteroffensive operation, and we will move forward. Now we are thinking, of course, personally me, I understand what uh, going to be, because I understand that we need to be in uh, defense during short this period, during uh, nearest few months. And then, of course, we need to be prepared, probably if we will have opportunity, if we will have enough uh, power, I mean enough power, uh, enough weapons, enough arm. We need to to be continue and prepare for probably uh, future counteroffensive operation. Let's talk about temporarily occupied Crimea. Ultimately, I received a lot of heat in Russian media about uh, a week ago because I was on uh, television in the United States and I stated clearly that I didn't expect the Kerch Bridge. And for those listeners listening, the Kerch Bridge is the bridge that connects. Uh, Ukrainian Crimea, temporarily occupied Crimea, to the Russian mainland, and it was built after Russia invaded Crimea. I said I didn't expect it to be standing, and I also expected our troops, my, my colleagues in the defense forces, to have success in Crimea. The Russians immediately accused me of terrorism, which is one of their favorite uh, lines to attack people with. Can you explain to our audience the importance of temporarily occupied Crimea to Ukraine, but also to Russia and why it's such a, a, a focal point of the attacks by our defense forces to bring back Crimea under Ukrainian governance. First point that Russians uh, illegal made annexation of Crimea in 2014. And you know that there are several resolutions, a lot of resolutions of General Assembly of the United Nations, that Russians need to uh, demilitarize and need to uh, move back from Crimea. But what Russians did during these years, they uh, moved uh, to Crimea a lot of weapons, a lot of systems, and even more than is it used to be uh, in the Soviet Union period. So you can imagine this. So Russians using Crimea uh, like, uh, you know, a huge military base, from this military base, they are continuing their operation on the occupied territory, uh, Ukrainian occupied territory uh, uh, on the left bank of Kherson and Zaporizhia and southern uh, region of Donetsk Oblast. And second point, so that's why they have a lot of uh, weapons, a lot of uh, uh, stockpiles there in Crimea. And they moving these uh, weapons from Russia using the Kerch Bridge. So that means that they are using Kerch Bridge uh, for their military needs and they are continuing 
war and active aggression against Ukraine. So, you know, that's a failed accusation and fake accusation against you. Thank you for your support. It, it's good to have a lawyer of your, of your esteem, yes, to, to be uh, vindicating me. So thank you. Yes, that's military object. If we are looking, if, because Russians using this bridge for continued aggression against Ukrainians. So, and for occupying Ukrainian territory illegally. So that's why if we are speaking, if we are talking about uh, the target of Crash Bridge, that's a legal target. That's so uh, according to the international humanitarian law. So uh, that's the third point. And the first point that's very important because Russians using Crimea not only uh, like the threat against Ukraine, but against NATO countries in the Black Sea region, against uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and Turkey. And also, by the way, uh, I need to say and explain that, look, Russians have right now in the Black Sea caliber missiles, submarines, and ships. They are also having uh, ships with a caliber missile in the Mediterranean Sea. And there's also the threat, not only for Ukraine, that's also very important to understand. And so that's why we are talking that uh, Crimea is very important and uh, in this way. And Russians, they are really afraid. They are really afraid and they are talking that Ukraine, Ukrainian forces can destroy their air defense systems in Crimea. They are afraid that Ukrainians can move on because we have right now uh, a small but a place on the left bank of the Kherson, and we are continuing our operations there. So, yes, they are really disturbed because of this. And they are talking that, look, what we're going to do if Ukrainian forces will be closer to Crimea. And that's why uh, I am almost confident that then Putin will uh, make a statement that, look, we will use nuclear missiles just to blackmail West. We've certainly heard that before. That wouldn't be the first time we heard that from Putin. And and he gets some kind of a reaction, but I think he's getting diminishing returns every time he he says that now. I, I want to ask you a, a little bit about um, not only the psychological state of, of the people of Ukraine at this point as we're heading into the third year now of the war, from the very beginning, many folks, including all of us at Resolute Square, as soon as the invasion happened, were urging that Ukraine be given everything it needed to defeat Russia and Putin and end this quickly. Clearly, um, that hasn't been uh, the outcome of what has happened. So we do have a war of attrition now. I get the sense uh, from talking to Sarah and everything that I read and see that the people of Ukraine are incredibly committed to a complete and total victory, and including in Crimea, this uh, there there will be total territorial integrity. So I have a better sense of the Ukrainian people. Do you think there is a price that Putin is paying in Russia? for this going into the third year now. And he's emptied the prisons. I don't, I don't know who, is, who continues to be left for him to be using as cannon fodder. But it, is there opposition building? 
Well, you know, they are also using now people they used to, they, they have mercenaries, uh, head mercenaries from Nepal. And now I can say that they also have mercenaries from Africa because uh, we saw an example, for example, a few days ago, uh, Ukrainian, our uh, armed forces of Ukraine, they saw uh, mercenaries from Africa, from Somalia, from Mogadishu. So, they, yes, they, they are trying to move mercenaries from everywhere, but, uh, and also from jails, also from the prisons. Yes, they are continuing this. And also what I can see, that's very important to tell that, look, uh, now what we can see, if we are talking about Russian forces, that they... Uh, do not have so strong moral as they used in 2022. Because, look, now they are uh, asking some questions to their commanders. Sometimes sometimes they are talking that, look, we do not have enough ammunition, we do not have enough weapons, probably we need to go back home, and so on. Of course, Russians trying to use some kinds of repression against them, of course, and they will continue. But, uh, you know, when we are talking about opposition, what I've noticed and uh, examples of this war and experience of this war studied, have studied me, that this opposition can be not only from, you know, the leaders of the liberal wing opposition, which are around the world right now, Russians, yes, because they cannot live in Russia, we understand this in these conditions. But this opposition can be from this uh, people, soldiers, which are continue war against Ukraine. Remember the example of revolution, Bolshevik revolution in Russia. Yes, uh, that was uh, who who did it? Who were these people? Sailors and soldiers from the front front line of the World War One, and they killed their commanders and officers and moved to Petrograd. Look on the situation last summer, 2023, Prigozhin. He was with his people against Ukrainians. Uh, you know, they were terrorist Wagner groups. What they did it against Ukrainian people, that was terrible. But who did it? They moved on Moscow. So I presume that these people from these uh, soldiers uh, can repeat the same. And they they can have a new leader. I, I don't know who will be him. And then probably they can be, you know, like, uh, uh, like in huge bomb. They can demolish this bomb. And then I don't know who can use this situation. Maybe liberal opposition, maybe someone else. But uh, I, I, I think that these protests will come from, from there, from their military camps. Because they will not have enough weapons, ammunition, and so on. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, continuing along this line of thinking, because it was a great question from Lisa about the morale and where you're, you're discussing the internal threats to Putin. Recently, the armed forces of Ukraine exchanged prisoners of war for the first time in many months. We were able to receive 230 of our heroes back from Russia uh, and the Russians received 248 people back. Of that 248, 180 of them were convicts, were felons. 
Vladimir Putin and the Russian military requested these felons to be returned, these convicts, as opposed to regular soldiers, be them conscripts or, or, or long-term contracted soldiers. Do you think this is because of what you're saying, that Putin has more control over the convicts, therefore he's trying to take them out of the prisons uh, again and take them back to the front versus regular soldiers? Or, or what is the reason to have requested almost 200 prisoners back? I agree with you because they, you know, they're trying to show and Putin tries to show that, look, you will have a new future if you will go to the war against Ukrainians so you can have amnesty and so on and so on. Uh, but they are dying a lot in these actions uh, on the front lines, Russians prisoners. So, but um, what I can see is that he afraid his own people. He afraid because what? How, how is he thinks that? Look, if we will take people from the, if we will take uh, take people from ordinary families, I don't know from somewhere, people will be disturbed. They are asking the questions why. Where? Where are my relatives, my son, my husband, and so on, uh, my father? Where are they? Why? Why is this happening? And who will thinking about uh, prisoners? They're thinking that, look, everyone forget about them, so we can use them as we want. So that means that, and by the way, look on the inter very interesting point. Russians uh, continue to use uh, FPV drones. They are not using so much right now for their offensive actions, people. Because why? They have problems with the people who are ready to go to these attacks because they understand that they cannot return back from these attacks and they are trying to change this by drones. Yes, that's the point. It's not the, about that they are trying to use, you know, uh, uh, modern uh, technical warfare and so on. Of course, they will tell about this. They are using and so on. And so I think that the problems in this, because and that's why they are trying. And of course, problem in uh, artillery. They lost uh, a lot of artillery systems, so they are trying to change this by drones and change the people. So that also mean that of course they have a lot of people. If you are listening to Minister Russian Minister of Defense Shoigu, you tell that look, we have twenty five millions, and we can mobilize twenty five millions. How? I want to see how you will how you will mobilize this twenty five millions if they mobilized uh, into say in twenty twenty two three hundred yes three hundred three three hundred and fifty and so thousands and so what they had the problems with this because of the because of the military camps prepared them logistics and so on and so on. A lot of problems. Of course, we cannot and we don't need to underestimate them or overestimate it. That also will be a mistake to do that. But uh, what I can see is that right now, Russians try to show, uh, especially to the Western audience, people in Europe, in the United States, in Canada, everywhere, that we are going, if we are going to the war of attrition, we will have more power we have more people, we have more weapons, and we will get a victory. So stop to support Ukrainians. Uh, you need to think about your internal problems and so on, and just let's go to the negotiations, to the negotiations table. But that's 
a huge mistake and that's a trap which Putin's tried to do, especially for, for Western audience, because they're trying to show this like a panic, you know. But look, if they are so powerful, if they are so strong, where is their ballistic missiles? Why they are using uh, ballistic missiles from North Korea? So powerful. Look now, uh, I saw uh, the face of Kim today from the North Korea. He looks happy. Oh my God, I'm helping Russia. Somebody wrote about me. I'm so happy, yes. Let's prepare to the war against uh, South Korea. Yeah, Putin asked me about help. So, but what, what does it mean? So look, uh, it means that Russians... Russians, what they did, they was helping to produce uh, North Korean missile like uh, Iskander, and now they are asking this missile. So feel the difference. But Russians try to show that look, we have a, a lot of powerful still. If I may jump in here, uh, Lisa, if you don't mind, I want to ask another question of, of Alexander. You brought up North Korea. Yesterday on my Twitter feed, I put out a story that uh, in exchange for this technology, the, the, the ballistic missile technology from Russia, not only was Russia getting back from North Korea the actual made uh, arms, but North Korea had agreed to export 500,000 North Koreans to engage in basically slave labor, not at the front, but doing construction work and things of that sort. C- can you talk a little bit about... Russia's use of of slavery uh, as a way to carry out their war economy regarding uh, people being brought in from former Soviet states, North Korea, Africa, etc. Could you talk to the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, because they're trying to use these people like uh, as slaves because uh, they are without any IDs, any documents there. So they are like, uh, you know, in illegal status in Russia. So Russian authorities uh, do as they want with them. And they're using for different kinds of hard work, for example, on different factories and so on. And also uh, on the factories of defense industry also for the hard work, very hard work. And and also we had an experience and so that Russians uh, was trying to use them, for example, for very hard work, uh, you know, on the back, on the front line to construct some defense positions, uh, to dig some trenches, and so on. In one condition, they can be, uh, they can have Russian passport, Russian ID. If, for example, one of these people uh, will be prepared and ready to go to Russian army and to sign the contract with Russian army and uh, to go to the front line, at least for one year, then they will have Russian passport. Yeah, of course, no problem. And they, if you will... Uh, uh, return from the front line, you can live in Russia and so on and so on. But a lot of them uh, cannot return from the front line. We understand why, uh, the reasons of this. So, yes, Russians trying to... I, I just have to, I have to say, they don't return from the front lines because the armed forces of Ukraine has enough success in, unfortunately, for, for the, the, these people's families, but not unfortunate for, for the Ukrainian people. Uh, we kill them. We are carrying out incredible amounts of casualties against Russian troops on the front lines. We're approaching 400,000 casualties against the Russians since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. To think about that, that's uh, more than some cities 
uh, will have uh, over the course of generations approaching 400,000 uh, dead and injured Russians. And so you just brought up a, a great point again, unfortunate point for humanity, but an important point for, for the show, that not only are they giving convicts the ability to go ahead and, and get their uh, records cleansed and, and be brought back into society, but they're bringing slave labor in, either forcing them to work in factories, but if these men are willing to go to the front on behalf of Russia and they survive, which is highly unlikely, then they get given a piece of paper which allows them to be a Russian citizen. It's the most unbelievable extortion and blackmail that we could um, uh, really imagine taking place in 2024. This is just a form of human trafficking, right? It's, it's exactly what trafficked people are promised before they tr are trafficked and they uh, agree to go forward with what's being asked of them only to find out that's not really what the intention of the state or the individual was. And they, there, there is no point uh, that they are going to end up being free people again, no matter what, what, uh, goalposts they reach, no matter what uh, criteria they fill, it's always going to be moved a little farther out and a little farther out. And, you know, you hold out the passport or whatever other documents these people need or the money to go back to their families. And it doesn't happen because the intention was never to do that. So, Alexander, I want to ask you about the profound differences between Russia, China, Iran, the, these countries that do treat their people with far less than normal humanitarian and civil rights versus uh, the countries that are working to support Ukraine and the Ukrainians themselves. Can you, I, I, I think we don't talk enough about what the philosophy, what what people in Ukraine have grown up with as an expectation of civil society and what democracy is and how they should be treated and represented by their government versus the, the people who have invaded them or are assisting Putin. First of all, we are completely different people. And uh, Putin tries to explain that, look, uh, Russians and Ukrainians the same. We are the same nation. So one nation. There are no Ukrainian nation. Only Russians. We are all Russians. He what what he did. He even said once that probably it looks loving uh, even like civil war. <laughs> how it how it can be civil war in sovereign nation. We have sovereign nation Ukrainian free people here. We. Uh, have independence and we want to be independence. We want to be independent country and we are, want to live according to the Western values. That means uh, freedom of speech. Uh, that means that, uh, you know, human rights. That means democracy. That means uh, everything for us. It's very important. And look, even now in Ukraine, when we are in war, we have parliament, we have discussions on U in Ukrainian media, media, we have opposition which criticizes Ukrainian government. Yes, we have this. We have uh, opposition media like 
in ordinary European country. So we have the same now. And uh, that's also very important. We have different discussions, even hard discussions. For example, now about uh, the law of mobilization, the bill of mobilization, new, how to uh, continue this. We have a lot of discussions here in the civil society between member of parliaments and here in media, like uh, ordinary uh, country living according to democratic uh, values and standards. And also Ukrainians love freedom. You know, we are loving freedom. And if, uh, uh, look, if we are compare Ukraine and Russia, for example, or Iran, China, we saw some, you know, uh, opposition movements in Iran, for example. But that seems not enough, you know, this pressure from civil society. Yes, because if you will see Ukrainian uh, experience, we had experience of Maidan, of revolution of dignity. That was because that we had uh, President Yanukovych, which wants to do the same like Lukashenko with Belarus. Yes, so, and that was... And look, if you will, uh, and Ukrainians, uh, peaceful nation. We are just uh, trying to defend, to defend our nation, our land, our people. That's all. We, uh, but look on the Russians, the difference, which uh, they are continuing building empire, unfortunately, in the 21st century. They are continuing building empire. They have empire in their minds. And they are not, we are thinking about our internal issue, but Russians thinking about external issues. And they are thinking that, look, we cannot fix in our problems internal here, somewhere in Tver, in Tomsk or Tambov. We are not thinking that, look, uh, we are continuing using coal mines, but we have a lot of gas which we are continuing to uh, supplying somewhere. And, but look, we need to go against Ukraine or against Georgia or against uh, Moldova or Baltic nations. What are they thinking? Imperial minds. That's, that's, that's also the difference. And also the difference that uh, we want to have democracy, democracy, democracy values and uh, we want to have uh, elections, free elections here. And we also want to change our governments, our parliaments and our president through elections, normally. That's a very normal situation. Look in Russia. We cannot imagine that, look, Mr. Poroshenko and Mr. Zelensky will be 20 years or 25 years. He will be like a president. That's impossible in Ukraine because we have two terms according to the Constitution and that's all. So that's also we cannot imagine this in Ukraine. So that's very deep. And what I can see is that this war is a war that's really the war uh, assertorian governments against and assertorian worlds, uh, world against the democracy world, against world of democracies. And that's read uh, to all democracies. Because look, uh, if Ukraine, imagine if Ukraine uh, will lose. So look, Kim uh, has already happy face. And he talks about the war against South Korea. Yes, he looks uh, on the Iranian authorities. They are talking about the war against Israel and and so on and Western world. China, they will also see the 
if uh, Western countries and uh, camp of democracies will be not so strong, so Chinese uh, authorities will sink in and uh, Communist Party. So look, we can move on on Taiwan, for example. And, or we can move on, I don't know, somewhere near Philippines, where they're using their uh, ships, naval ships to block in, yes, uh, Philippine ships. So that's, uh, that means a lot of threats. Uh, but what I can see, they cannot have a success if uh, Western countries will be united with Ukraine. They do not have really chances. Because they will see an example of this, uh, of this democracies and Ukrainian fighting in this, I think, for our liberty and freedom um, can inspire a lot of people. I want to jump in here. I think it's important. The Resolute Square audience, you brought up a statement about autocracy, about authoritarianism. That's extremely important to those listeners who listen to Resolute Square. You have lived through uh, the situation with President Trump his first impeachment, which was tied to Ukraine. And yesterday, a leaked audio came out where President Trump stated that uh, he would not defend Europe. And in fact, uh, he wants to get paid back for the money that uh, NATO nations have not paid the United States. How big a threat in your mind, and maybe to the Ukrainian people, is a second term for President Trump? Explain the thinking when it comes to the view of Ukrainians regarding President Trump and your view regarding security in Europe, security of Ukraine, if President Trump gets into office? Well, uh, I'm really afraid because of the statements like this, that look, uh, uh, of NATO and so on, that's, um, that's very dangerous. Because look, Russians really expect that if United States will withdraw from NATO, let's imagine, what what's gonna be happen? I I can tell you, Russians will use this chance, and they will attack European countries, and then they will tell that look, uh, Russia needs to play leading role in the European defense, leading role, and that's Russian dream. Shortly, I can explain that it will be a gift for Russians. They are waiting for this. You know that I read unclassified document from 1999, conversation of President Yeltsin and uh, President Bill Clinton. Uh, they had a meeting in, uh, in Turkey, in Ankara or Istanbul somewhere, I don't remember. And Yeltsin was talking to President Clinton that, look, Bill, leave, uh, leave Europe for us. Leave Europe for us. He was talking about this in 1999. So that means that the threat from Russia, they, you know, they were planning this. When I'm talking about empire, so that was changing from Russian empire, then Soviet Union, and and now they want to restore some kind of Soviet Union or Russian empire. And then uh, that will going to be a huge threat to uh, Europe and what Russians try to do, they are trying to divide European Union, to divide NATO. They are trying to support some far right groups in Europe or far left groups uh, in uh, European policies. 
they are trying to sponsor them. And if you are looking on rhetoric of these groups or, or political parties, every one of them uh, speaking that, look, they have anti-American uh, statements. And also, if you will uh, compare this rhetoric to rhetoric that Putin, Putin stated uh, last year that uh, Germany occupied by Americans. He stated this, and Putin stated. So what he wants to explain that, look, uh, and Putin stated that Russia need to liberate Europe. So let's. So what I mean, and what I want to need to say is that if we can imagine just a moment that United States will withdraw from NATO and cannot guarantee European security, that means that Russia will think that that will be a huge gift for them, a huge gift, because they feel a chance, and then. They will divide Europe because United States and NATO guarantee peaceful defense and security in Europe. If United States will go back or step back, so Russia will use this uh, uh, chance. And then uh, I presume that we will have a very bad and terrible scenario. And I presume that it will mean the huge war in Europe, big war. Bigger than now we, we can see in Ukraine. Oleksandr Musienko, I know we're coming to an end of our program. This was so insightful. Uh, so the audience knows a little bit of background. Oleksandr and I used to do a show together, a live show. And it was pretty amazing to be able to do a live show. During martial law, people would say there's no free speech. And uh, sometimes I, I would actually have to uh, hide because Oleksandr always spoke the truth, even if it was controversial. And that's what makes you so amazing, uh, Alexander Musienko. And, and I hope you come back on the Zero Line. And I just wanted to say thank you for, for coming in and giving us this amazingly insightful uh, view as to what's happening both geopolitically and at the literal Zero Lines uh, in this war against uh, Russia and this war for, for liberty and liberation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Alexander, for being here with us. This was, as Sarah said, incredibly valuable. I, I hope people share this episode far and wide. This is something that Americans need to fully understand and embrace. This is as critical as this is to Ukraine. This is critical to the entire Western world. <laughs> this isn't critical to the entire planet. Um, so thank you again for joining us. We hope you will come back again. Um, everybody, please subscribe to The Zero Line. Follow us on social media at Resolute Square. Sarah is at Sarah Ashton LV. I'm at LC Senecal. And thank you again for joining us. We will see you and talk to you next Thursday. Thank you all very, very much as usual. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And the Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to the Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at the zero line.